Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, what is life like in Turkey one year after the earthquakes? Well, this week saw the first anniversary of two powerful earthquakes that struck Turkey. The first hit shortly after 4am on February 4th last year, measuring 7.8 on the Richter scale. A second of 7.7 strength followed that afternoon. The two quakes were the largest to hit the country since 1939 and their impacts were devastating. Over 53,000 people were killed and over 100,000 injured. Another 6,000 were killed in neighbouring Syria. Roughly 3 million people were displaced and 700,000 remain homeless. So many are still suffering the effects of these quakes a year on. Thousands are living in container cities as many homes remain under rubble. Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan insists that criticism of his government's slow response is unfair and that much is being done, but it does seem that rebuilding is not happening fast enough. So today we're going to look at conditions there and find out what hope there is for people on the ground in an area that is five times the size of Ireland. To look at all of this, I'm joined by Diego Cupolo, who is editor-in-chief of the Turkey Recap, a newsletter covering Turkish politics and foreign affairs. And Diego is in Istanbul and is on the line, but we're also joined by our very own reporter and producer of this podcast, Nikki Ryan. Nikki has just returned from the affected areas of Turkey, where he reported for us here at The Journal. Thanks both of you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thanks very much, Laura. So, Diego, to you first, can you tell us what the experience of the earthquake itself was like for you? I mean, it was a massive disaster. The area that the earthquake impacted, it takes maybe five, six hours to drive through uh, in one direction. And then uh, between that, you have uh, something like 20 million, 15 to 20 million people affected by this and millions of buildings damaged. So in my experience of that day, I was in Istanbul, and when we woke up, we just knew there was an earthquake in the south. And um, there was little news because the power had gone out, uh, cell phone infrastructure went out. So in this modern age, when we're always connected, all of a sudden, many people were not connected. Uh, In some areas, there was cell phone infrastructure, and those people started tweeting, they started texting, and you could see online, as a journalist, we were following the news, you could see people saying, I'm stuck under the rubble in this location. Here is my address. Please save us. I'm with you know, my family members, this and that. There were countless tweets of people asking to be rescued. And it was just terrifying uh, to wake up to this kind of tweet storm, basically. And that was after the first earthquake. Then a second earthquake hit uh, later in the day, in the afternoon. And uh, that's when pretty much all the colleagues here in Istanbul uh, got on some planes and tried to get to the earthquake region. There was just a mess. Buildings were sideways. I went down not immediately, but a few days after. And when I got there, it was just, um, there's, it's, it's hard to describe without being there because like I said, this area is massive, but you're, you, everywhere you go, there's just destruction and buildings falling into each other, blocking roads. And, you know, I had not been to some of these areas before, and I was using Google Maps, which was impossible because the roads were cracked, didn't exist. There was uh, different problems. The first city that I went to in the earthquake zone was called uh, Iskenderun, near Hatay, near Antakya. 
and it was getting flooded. The city was going underwater. Parts of it were going underwater because the earthquake was so severe that part of the land shifted and water was coming in. And, you know, uh, soon it became night and then everything just, you know, went dark. And uh, I'm driving around by myself, uh, taking photos, recording what I have, what I see. Uh, and it's just uh, really, uh, I've never had an experience like that. And I've been to crisis areas before. I, I went to Katrina, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. I was covering wars. This was by far the biggest disaster I've ever seen. Absolutely horrendous scenes that you paint for us there, Diego. And when you think of two earthquakes over the level of seven on the Richter scale, they can just cause so much damage. And Nikki, as we mentioned in our intro there, you've just returned from the area where you reported for us there. What's your first impression of the situation on the ground there now? Well, I mean, I think Diego has captured it quite well. And I mean, the scale is, it's hard to grasp until you're actually there. Um and I mean, that was very clear from early on in our trip that a lot of people in, in Western Europe, they would be very much aware of the disaster. Um, they'd be aware of the devastation and the range of efforts that aid organizations um, put into helping with the suffering. But they might not fully grasp that some of the country is just still in ruins. Now, a lot of the country was largely unaffected by the earthquakes, but I visited the southern provinces of Gaziantep, Hatay and Adiamon. And from very early on, it was clear that the reconstruction process is still taking some time and there is a large number of people still homeless. I mean, it wasn't uncommon to see people in tents at the side of the road, you know, living at the site of their um, of their former home. And there are a lot of people still struggling. At the same time, though, there is an element of life is kind of going on as normal. People are picking themselves back up again where they can. And there was a frequent sense of, right, let's just do the best we can now to get through it. But so many people have lost their homes, lost their businesses, and so many people have also just lost loved ones as well in the disaster. And what kind of an area are we talking about here, Nikki? Can you describe what you saw in the cities? So we actually travelled a wide distance um, um, during the trip, um, roughly um, what Diego touched on there. And you could see that the scale of devastation was apparent throughout that region that we travelled through. Um, it was more pronounced in the cities. And I have some videos in my pieces I've written so far to show what I mean. And I I was quite stunned, really. And I'd spoken to people ahead of the trip and uh, asked about what it was like on the ground. And they said, if you've been to any of these cities before the earthquake, you will not see a similar city. Now, um, in Antakya, um, which is in the south, it's close to the border with Syria. We saw these wide spaces of just empty, muddy ground where housing complexes and apartment blocks would have stood before the earthquake. And they've all either collapsed or been demolished because they were made uninhabitable. And there were also so many buildings um, still in ruins that at first glance, when you drive through the city, you think, OK, there's a lot of buildings actually still standing here. You look at the at the skyline and there's a lot of buildings there. But as you get closer, um, you realise that these buildings are all empty. They've all been gutted. Um, they are just simply waiting to be demolished. And this kind of hides the true scale of the disaster, both initially in person and also if you look at Google Maps, you do see some rebuilding taking place. It is slow, but, you know, it's not massively widespread. Privately, a lot of people will say they wish it was happening quicker, but it's very hard to get on top of a disaster of this scale. And back to what I was saying um, a few moments ago that, you know, in one town in Gaziantep that we were standing in the middle of this massive empty space where dozens of apartments once stood, 
But then to one side, there was a busy market. We went in and people were welcoming and friendly. And so there is that kind of juxtaposition of places look like ghost towns. In many ways they are, but there are still people there getting on with their lives as well. So very real attempts to try and find some normality amongst this absolute devastation. Who did you manage to speak to then, Nikki, when you were travelling there? So many Turks have moved out of the provinces to their relatives if they can in other areas, other parts of the country. Um, But many remain. And there was one family that I spoke to that I want to focus on. And they were a prime example of what a lot of Turks are facing right now. Um, They're in in Adiaman and they're basically living in a tent where their house once stood. Um, There are six of them sleeping in this one tent. Um, and when I say tent, you're not picturing, you know, like a, a, a festival tent or something. It's kind of more of a, a, a slightly larger structure than that. It's a bit more sturdy. Um, they had a small lean-to that they were using for cooking and they had some very basic um, toilet and shower facilities. But this is still just their life a year on. They could move on to what um, are known as container cities, which are kind of more established camps where there are sometimes literal containers, some prefabs, sometimes something akin to um, what you might see at the side of a building site, that sort of small structure. A lot of Turks do live in these camps, but the family I spoke to, they didn't want to move to one because they were still living at the site of where their home once stood. They had access to some limited work in the area, although that was hard to come by. And if they moved out of the area, then they would lose access to that. There is some compensation available, but it's not really enough. They were offered a new home, but they'd have to take debt on in order to take that on. Traumatised as well, I could only imagine. And they probably want to stay in their local communities. Is that the case? And I mean, like... If I was in a situation, I'd probably want to stay in my own local community as well. And, you know, there, there is, when you are talking to these people, they let us into their, into their tent and we're sitting down and we're chatting to them. And there, it was very clear that they are very much still struggling. They have been through a huge amount, but they're kind of resolute in their determination to just get on with it. So uh, when you describe the container dwellings, that sounds like refugee camps as we would know them. Are there essentially refugees? There are so many people displaced. Well, you see, this is the unusual situation in Turkey because previously Turkey was hosted the largest number of refugees in the world and mostly Syrians. And now you have the issue of you not only have the refugees who, was, who are still there, but also the internally displaced people as well and um, the Turks who have lost their homes. And before, you know, the earthquake, the Syrians who have fled the civil war, they had integrated quite well. They were able to get housing. Um, But now the country is faced with kind of dual crisis at the same time. And, you know, what they have gone through as well is absolutely staggering. I um, spoke to one woman who had fled the war in Syria. She was piecing her life back together in Turkey. Um, At the time of the earthquake, she was visiting family in Antakya. The building they were in collapsed. She was trapped under the rubble for five days. The entire family she was visiting, including her husband, died um, in disaster. She had a miscarriage and her injuries were so severe that part of both of her legs had to be amputated. And, you know, it's very hard to be sitting in front of someone like that and to hear that story and incredibly difficult to see yourself in that situation and imagine going back to square one like that. Why we were speaking to her was because we were visiting a prosthetics clinic in Rehanli, um, which is in Hatay. Um, that clinic is funded by Relief International and the EU. Um, and I mean, if you look out the window of that clinic, you can actually see the border fence with Syria just a short distance away. But basically, she was there getting specialised treatment for her um, prosthetics, but also these mental health supports. And she was basically saying to us that because she was able to get these supports, that she now does see a future. She does have hope which is, you know, 
given what she's gone through, is it was incredible to have her sitting in front of us saying to her, t- saying to us, I have hope. Well, when it comes to these natural disasters, it can depend on the political climate, let's say, in the country of origin in terms of what NGOs can do on the ground. Is there a strong NGO participation here now in the recovery? So I touched on that um, a little bit there, that um, there is a lot, there's an awful lot of different organisations working on the ground. um, And during the visit, we basically got to look at a lot of the EU funded projects. And we'll chat about that a little bit more later on. But I mean, you see organisations like UNICEF, they help in areas like education and child protection. Um, Irish Charity Concern were involved as well. Um, Most noticeably in the initial aftermath, but they've also now rolled out programmes called WASH, where essentially they're looking at developing, as the name suggests, you know, toilet and shower facilities in some of the more informal camps, which are just collections of these tents, like where that um, Turkish family I spoke to were staying. Um, There's a huge amount in terms of what these organisations are doing to plug the gaps in areas of mental health, in areas of basic sanitation, and also working with local organisations to try to restore infrastructure, restore education, restore business. There's a huge amount happening on the ground. And Diego, when I hear Nikki describe all of this, my first feeling is how is there any stability in this area? You've got so many different thousands of people trying to subsist in this uh, devastating environment at the moment. What's the current political climate like in Turkey after these earthquakes? After the earthquakes, there was a huge election in May 2023, And many people expected this election to have negative consequences for the ruling party and the president, Erdogan. This didn't turn out to happen. Erdogan won, and by a sizable margin. Many people looking at the data and talking to earthquake survivors afterwards understood mainly that the government in power has the connections with the construction companies that are going to rebuild this area the fastest. So if you're a person who's staying in a tent or in a container and you want to move back into a house, voting for the government might put you in that house faster. This was the logic that many voters came to. I should mention that most of the earthquake area is primarily uh, government supporting already. So some people expected that government support to go down. It did not. And uh, now, fast forward to 2024, we're going to have elections again. This time it's going to be uh, municipal, so mayors and local governors. And the same thing is expected to happen. People are expected to vote for Erdogan's government because they have the connections, the resources, and the know-how to rebuild faster. And I want to highlight one thing that Erdogan said in a trip down to the earthquake area this weekend, he basically went to make a tour because the the elections are coming in March and he's doing some pre-campaigning for his candidates. And when he was in Hatay, one of the worst hit provinces, he said, if the central government and the local government don't work hand in hand, if they are not in solidarity, nothing good will come to the city. Many people took this as a blunt uh, expression where the president said, if you don't vote for us, you will not get services. And uh, many suspected this. Many people have complained about this, but this was the first time that we actually had it in words. If you don't, if the local government and central government don't work hand in hand, nothing good will come to the city. And Diego, you're saying that it was a surprise that he was re-elected in May, but perhaps maybe it shouldn't be because this shows his ability to control the message, doesn't it? Because his government didn't necessarily respond too well initially after these earthquakes. 
most of the criticism was because of the initial response. It was slow. So many people died in the first days after the earthquake under that rubble in freezing temperatures because government rescue crews were not on site, were not nearby, and were not dispatched fast enough. So initial efforts were heavily criticized. The ones that came afterwards with the massive rebuilding projects and the massive tent camps that were sponsored by construction companies and then uh, government aid, we have to we have to underline that the government has given aid to people in need, uh, even if it's limited, it's something, and this shows the government capacity to adapt to disasters. So with time, uh, this stance softened, I think, this anti-government sentiment softened. And also, I mean, in Turkey, there's been the same government for 20 years. So to step back, you have to understand that there hasn't really been a place for an opposition to grow and uh, really make a formidable challenge to this government because of the lack of, let's say, free media environment, uh, fair election uh, practices, and also just, uh, the you know, it's becoming an increasingly one-party state. And I think that's the main risk we're facing with these upcoming elections is that if the ruling party does succeed further in consolidating its gains over the country, uh, there really will be a negligible opposition, which exists only to legitimize this ruling party so that they can point to it and say, see, we have a democracy, you had a choice, but you didn't vote for them. But at the same time, this opposition is not able to function or operate in a, let's say, democratic environment. It is curious, isn't it, that with something like a natural disaster of this magnitude, that perhaps a, a stronger opposition hasn't emerged because of it, because sometimes that level of instability can create the ingredients. So it is probably a sign that Erdogan really has such a, a massive grip on power. We also have to um, push back that it's not only Erdogan. The opposition is also fairly incompetent. And, you know, many people won't be happy to hear that. But it's true. I mean, they don't deliver and they are blocked from delivering sometimes. But when there are opportunities to show what an alternative might be, they do not show the way. Uh, Turkish politics are very polarized. There's different kinds of people in this country, different ethnic minorities, different languages, and uh, strong nationalist segments of society do not want to mix with you know, minority groups or people from different backgrounds. So you have a splintered opposition that cannot form a challenge to Erdogan. And Erdogan represents the pro-business, conservative, let's say, majority, because most people are either pro-business or conservative in Turkey. He's taken the most fertile land and he's uh, developed it while everybody else is dealing with very fragmented, rocky terrain, let's say. And with that in mind then, Diego, what tensions maybe exist between the refugees and the host communities, if any, in the affected areas? Yeah, so refugees in Turkey, as Nikki said, are a sizable number. There's about 4 million altogether Syrians, mostly Syrians, and some Afghans. The issue with distributing aid in Turkey is that when aid groups go to low-income neighborhoods and visit the refugee uh, families, many Turkish neighbors will come to that group and say, where's our aid? We're poor too. Because Turkey is a middle-income country, it's still coming out of you know, decades of, let's say, 
economic uh, crisis in the 90s and early 2000s. So there, there are a lot of people in need. So mainly the government responds by trying to give the same amount of aid to Syrians and Turks. The difference is that Syrians do not have work permits. The vast majority are not uh, legal workers. So this creates the main tension because a Syrian can take a job and take half the salary and then Turkish employees get upset because they can't compete. They don't want to work illegally under the table for half a salary. So you do have tensions. Uh, and the main way that we see this play out is that the communities mostly stay separate. This is also evident in the camps. If there are displaced people inside Turkey, usually they divide by ethnicity or nationality. So Syrians will have their sections or their camps and Turks will have their own and then Kurds will go somewhere else. And then this is just the way that the order is kept, let's say, between the groups. Uh, but there's always that competition for jobs, for funding, for money, uh, always with the Syrians at a disadvantage for not having proper paperwork and, uh, you know, working permit. And Nikki, you were over there with European Humanitarian Aid. Who are they and what do they do? So I'll give the department its full title. Um, just to begin, it's the European Commission Civil Protection and Humanitarian Aid Operations. Um, they're often referred to as simply ECHO. They have a very large remit, but broadly speaking, they focus on helping people in need, um, not just in the EU or Europe, but around the world. Regular listeners will be familiar with episodes we covered last year. You know, we looked at their work in terms of what they're doing in Myanmar or how they help EU countries themselves fight wildfires and that sort of natural disaster. But ECHO and the EU have been very active in Turkey even before the earthquake. They were, you know, working to address the basic needs of refugees like food and shelter. And then after the earthquake, the EU provided um, 1 billion euro in emergency assistance. Um, and there's been also been the guts of about an additional billion that focuses on the needs of refugees, as well as the reconstruction of the country's basic infrastructure, and as well as this continued focus on humanitarian aid um, through the work of ECHO. So... The European Union doesn't have aid workers on the ground per se. You will see people wearing um, ECHO jackets with the EU flag on their back. But what's happening is, is that the EU will give funding to an international partner and then they will in turn um, work with a local NGO to deliver the service. And then you have EU staff on the ground who are making sure that the needs of the people are being met and that the money is going to where it's needed and that the money is actually also going to where they intended for it to go. So, for example, um, you might have like the with the prosthetics clinic, that's Relief International, but they're working with a local group on the ground to deliver that funding to the people who need it. And also overarching all of this is the fact that, that Turkey is trying to become a member of the European Union. Um, that process is pretty much stalled right now, but that hasn't really impacted this sort of support, you know. So it's either a show of solidarity or it's a little bit of EU soft power as well, depending on which way you look at it. And you also spoke then, I think, with the EU ambassador to Turkey. What did they tell you? Yes, I spoke with Nikolaus Mayer Landrut, who is, um, as you said, the EU ambassador to Turkey. Um, he was very keen to stress that the EU was there from the very beginning of this disaster and is providing even more money now, as I mentioned, in terms of the rehabilitation of infrastructure, um, health, education and so on. Um, and also he stressed the need for other supports um, for the country to boost the local economy, create more jobs, allow people to get back on their feet a little bit, little bit more easily. But 
it was also a little bit of a testy interview as he wasn't really willing to be drawn on the pace of the rebuilding process. And, you know, he cited that the government, that the Turkish government is committing 2.5% of its GDP to the recovery. But there's also this absorption issue where you can put as much money as you like in, but maybe there will not be the amount of workers required to take that money and turn it into actual buildings and actual convert that money into bricks and mortar. Um, I also put it to him that, you know, the EU is spending millions of euro to help Turkey, but at the same time, Turkey only recently signed a deal with the US to buy around 20 billion euro worth of new fighter jets. And he basically told me that it's not his place to comment on the priorities of individual governments. So there is that kind of dynamic that exists in that we are providing funding to Turkey. Turkey have their own priorities in terms of where the budget is used. Um, but there is a, a there is a large effort within Turkey to get the money and get the rebuilding process up and running. As always, these geopolitical tensions in the background. And Diego, lots of talk here about foreign aid and NGOs operating on the ground since these earthquakes. But how big a role has foreign aid played here? And do you think the Turkish government has worked well with these bodies overall? Yeah, uh, foreign aid is essential in a disaster. So it was helpful. It seems like now, one year on, some of that foreign aid and those foreign NGO groups are phasing out their uh, support in Turkey. I'm not sure about exact numbers and exact organizations, but I can use the uh, Syrian refugee crisis as an example. Initially, when Syrians started leaving Syria in 2011, 2012, 2013, there was a sudden rush uh, across Turkish borders, and these people needed shelters, they needed accommodations, and the children needed school, right? So Turkey could not handle all of this by itself. And foreign aid groups came, they helped these Syrian populations. But over time, they transitioned their aid to Turkish government structures. So instead of an NGO handling education or healthcare, they handed it over to the Turkish education ministry or health ministry. And I believe the same thing is happening now, one year after the earthquake, uh, basic needs once they are met, and they are not yet, we have to remember this, people are intense, many don't have bathrooms, it's cold. Uh, once basic needs are met, the NGOs will pull back. I think that's what we can expect. Uh, and definitely, their contributions have been appreciated by the people that uh, receive them, along with individual efforts, because many people drove down to the region from Europe with cars full of aid and, you know, every bit helped. And you reference that people still are struggling, they're living in tents or they're in um, really difficult situations in bad weather, that kind of thing. But So how much rebuilding is actually happening then, Diego? Well, I mean, we have to go back to this was a massive disaster. There have been aftershocks for months. They continue today. We felt one when we were in our hotel. Nikki was uh, the first one to feel it. And because of the scale of the disaster and the amount of cleanup that's required, we're talking about massive cities. There was a lot of buildings that fell over and removing that rubble is a physical challenge. You have to put it somewhere, you have to put it in trucks, you have to dump it somewhere. So I think just the logistics of it um, create a rebuilding challenge. The issue is that the government, Erdogan, promised rebuilding would happen within one year, which was an ambitious and bold statement, but you know, realistically, I didn't expect that. Uh, it's a promise to give hope. I think that rebuilding will happen for decades, and as 
the son of an Italian family who left southern Italy after the 1980 earthquake, uh, I could tell you that rebuilding still hasn't been finished in Italy in that region. And the economy continues to suffer, and many people blame that 1980 earthquake. So I believe this earthquake will have the same impact in Turkey, where you never fully recover, and it remains a period that everyone marks as the moment everything changed. And do you think it's reasonable to assume that the rebuilding projects are focusing on earthquake-proof buildings, or is it a case of piecemeal, get a building together, keep going? I mean, (laughs) there's so many buildings going up so fast, but the ones that are being built by the government housing authority, which is called TOKI, actually follow uh, building standards. They have um, modular homes which come pre-built and basically the workers assemble them like an Ikea furniture. And these are built to earthquake standards for the earthquake zone that, you know, Turkey inhabits. So those buildings are not nice to look at. They're basically big high rises, like something you might see in China, where you have the same building 10 or 20 times, but they are safe. It's the, the issue is the independent contractors and also independent people. People like to build their own homes. And because the government oversight is weak, they don't inspect many homes. At least that was the case in the past. Maybe that will change in the future. The issue is Turkey had a huge earthquake near Istanbul in 1999, and nothing changed after that. So, you know, being optimistic after this one feels a little bit foolish. And I, I just say on that as well, that when we're, um, when we're driving through Hatay, we did see a huge number of apartment blocks springing up, but there was nothing around. It was essentially, it, it, it reminded me a lot of Ballymun in a way that, you know, they were building these huge tower blocks of accommodation without any obvious services. It was a small town attached to it, but it was still a long distance away from any major urban centre as well. Which I suppose for this, to, to give them their due in, in, in an emergency situation like this, it's understandable, but unfortunately it's not going to do right by the communities in the long term, isn't it? And finally, Diego, where do you see it all going next? Because when what you both describe sounds like the you know, the ability for, for some very political tensions to emerge. And it's I'm surprised that there hasn't been any more any kind of violent outbursts between communities as it is. Are they just so busy struggling right now? Where do you see it all going? Well, throughout, the one thing we haven't mentioned is Turkey has been in a prolonged economic crisis since 2018. So after the earthquake hit, many people in the earthquake region moved and they moved to places like Ankara and the capital, and rents have skyrocketed. So it's become quite un, un, it's become very unaffordable to exist in Turkey as a Turkish citizen making an average wage. Rents have gone up, demands have gone up, and the earthquake region will take, you know, minimum a decade to rebuild in some form, and then multiple decades to re-inhabit fully. Uh, what this means is that there's demographic change. I think that we'll see huge shifts in voting trends and populations that live around Turkey. And uh, people's lives will be changed forever. Uh, The way that I see this having impact politically is that Erdogan and his government has close ties to construction companies, which I mentioned earlier. These companies are looking forward to rebuilding cities. This is going to be very profitable for them. So this is another project where the government and its... uh, allied businesses can profit from. And I think this will be driving the Turkish economy for quite some time. What that means for the people affected by it 
is I think they'll just have to adapt to whatever circumstances they are given because what other choice do they have? Well, it's clear the situation remains so difficult and challenging for so many in Turkey and it's something that we should not forget. Thanks so much to both of you for joining me today. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Thanks again to Diego Cupolo and Nikki Ryan for joining us today. You've been listening to the Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by senior producer Nikki Ryan and executive producer Sinead O'Carroll. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>